Welcome to the Raging Rhino Podcast. This is podcast number 159. My name is John. How I wish I'd never gone into my lab to experiment that night before lightning flashed around me and time changed speed. I've told the story before, but this is a good time to repeat it. When I was a little kid back in the late 70s, I, like most kids, got up early every Saturday morning to religiously watch cartoons. Long before weekday afternoon cartoons became a thing, much less entire networks dedicated to them, the only way a kid got to watch new cartoons was to tune into one of the three networks on Saturday morning. The stars were aligned for me to become a comic book fan because my favorite cartoon that just thrilled little six-year-old me in 1978 was Challenge of the Super Friends. This had expanded past the core of Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Superman, Batman, and Robin, and included a bunch of cool characters that I had not heard of at the time, but I would soon know plenty about. There were characters like Black Vulcan, Green Lantern, who would become my favorite, and my second favorite superhero, The Flash. Back then, these were B-list characters. Everyone knew about Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, thanks to live-action TV and movie appearances, but not too many people knew about the others. While most of the kids stuck with the popular characters, I gravitated to the lesser-known. It wasn't too long after, in early 1979, great song, that I was at a grocery store with my mom. This was back in the day when you could be a little kid and wander off on your own and be safe in a grocery store. I ended up in the magazine aisle, and on the bottom shelf, perfect placement for a seven-year-old, were comic books. And my eyes immediately went to a title in big, bold, red letters, The Flash. There it was. The fast guy from the cartoon that I love so much. But the cover was so weird. It looked like a, a party for superheroes, but I recognized a villain, Captain Cold, in the background with some other characters I didn't know. In the center, there was Flash dancing with Batgirl? In the foreground, there was some guy in a gas mask shooting Bizarro, another villain. Ah. The dialogue balloon said it was a masquerade party, so now it made some sense. And in the corner of the cover is a picture of an invitation reading, quote, You are cordially invited to the last dance and witness the death of... End quote. With a thumb covering up the rest. It had my little kid brain crazy with intrigue. And it only cost 40 cents. My mom was gracious enough to buy it for me. 
Little did she know the monster she was creating. So, this comic is roughly 44 years old, so I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it for you. It picks up from the previous issue with Flash running involuntarily to a woman controlling him with psychic powers. Because she wants to know who he really is. After forcing him with her powers to remove his mask, she's disappointed that he was ordinary. Even calling him ugly. She storms out of her apartment and leaves. Crazy ass 70s comic book shit, am I right? Barry is perplexed by it all, but does not realize that his wife Iris has followed him with a tracking device and watched the woman leave the apartment he entered into moments before. She finds Barry inside, assumes he's having an affair, runs back to her car and drives away. Now, why would the fastest man alive allow his wife to run back to the car and drive away while he just stands there? Simple, 70s comic book plot convenience. An emotional Iris speeds on the freeway, hits a tanker trailer, and nearly dies. But Flash saves her, and the truck drivers, at the last second. Of course, he leaves with Iris while the thing's still burning, but who cares? It's the 70s. This gives them a chance to talk and resolve the whole situation between the married couple in a total of four comic book panels because now they have to get ready for the policeman's masquerade ball that night. They're supposed to go as Batman and Batgirl, but oops, the Batman costume had already been rented. So Barry decides, of course, to just go dressed as the Flash. All this time, Iris has had a stalker. An escaped convict, driven mad by unethical medical experiments, Clive Yorkin, has been watching her in secret. Barry and Iris get to the ball, and sure enough, there's that guy from the cover of the comic book in the gas mask pretending to shoot people. I would eventually find out he's supposed to be the Sandman, and don't get me started that the character's actually from another universe. So how would these people even know who he is? Turns out he's injecting people with PCP, or angel dust as they call it in the comic, including the Flash, who becomes dizzy. So Iris goes to get him some water from a nearby bathroom. Flash hears her scream and staggers to the room to find Clive Yorkin standing over her body. The Flash scares Yorkin off and tries to help Iris, but passes out. The other attendees of the ball, the costume cops, get there to the scene, and one of them examines both Iris and Barry and states they need to get one of them to the hospital right away. But the other is already dead. Spoiler alert, Iris is dead. Yeah, my very first comic as a seven-year-old child included accusations of adultery, crazed mental patients, illegal drugs, and the death of the main character's spouse. I was totally fucking hooked on comic books after that. And it didn't even matter I was in the middle of a storyline. I figured it out. So you comic book companies remember that the next time you insist on restarting a comic book title for the 85th fucking time. 
So, spoilers for the rest of Flash's original series run. Turns out Clive Yorkin is not Iris's killer. The reverse Flash killed her and framed Yorkin. Years later, after Barry has fallen in love and gotten engaged to another woman, the reverse Flash vows to kill the fiancé on their wedding day. Flash gives chase and snaps the villain's neck, killing him just a few yards away from the bride-to-be. The Flash is arrested and put on trial and is found guilty. But he finds out the jury's being manipulated. Flash flees to the future and finds out that another one of his rogues, Abracadabra, no lie, that's the name, was behind the verdict. While in the future, and don't overthink this part, just accept it and keep going, Flash discovers that Iris' spirit was drawn into the 30th century and has been given a new body. The final issue of the Flash's original series, number 350, ends with them living happily ever after. For a while. Because just a few months after the end of the Solo series, the Crisis on Infinite Earth series begins, where Barry Allen sacrifices his life to save five universes from being destroyed. I've often told my wife that superhero stories are like soap operas for boys. Outlandish plots, implausible scenarios, and characters dying and miraculously coming back to life. I think I just gave a good example of that supposition. I was sad when Barry Allen died in the comic books, and it was really cool that his former sidekick, Wally West, took up the mantle and became the new Flash, and in many ways surpassed Barry as a cool character. Wally was fortunate enough to come along when comics were escaping the foolish self-regulation that held back creativity and storytelling. Most of the really good concepts about Flash these days, and most of the stuff you find in other media, like the recently wrapped television show and the movie, come from the Wally West era. But you don't get there without the Barry Allen era, so I really appreciate both. Speaking of the TV show, I know the longer a show goes on, the more likely the quality is going to drop, and the Flash TV series may well be the prime example. I can think of certain scenes or parts of some episodes over the past four or five seasons that were really cool, but I can't think of a full episode that I really liked, much less an entire season. I think the last time I talked about the show, I couldn't remember the plot of Season 7, and when I finally remembered, I wished it had remained forgotten. All the cool DC characters that made their way into the first few seasons were pretty much all gone, and replaced with obscure characters from the comics no one really cares about who, in some cases, had no superpowers, but were given powers on the show. Uninteresting characters with generic story arcs dulled the show over the last few seasons. Jeannie used to watch it with me, but she bowed out a few seasons back, and to be honest, 
I only muscled through because of the character. I used to watch each episode when it came out and keep up with the story. But it got to the point where I would just wait for the full season to drop on Netflix. And even then, I found myself checking my phone during episodes because it just couldn't keep my attention. The original Flash TV show only lasted for one season back in the early 90s. And that was the sad victim of people in charge who didn't fully understand how to treat the character. Was it a dark tragedy in the style of the Tim Burton Batman, where the hero has to get revenge for the death of a family member? Was it a, a bright, colorful spectrum of action? Was it outlandish camp with villains and sometimes even the heroes hemming it up for the camera? Sadly, it was trying to be all of those things at once. The dialogue was often clunky. Iris was written out of the first couple of episodes in favor of another romantic interest. Most of the villains were underwhelming. Don't get me wrong, despite its flaws, I felt it was a valiant effort and may have sorted itself out had it been allowed to continue. I even bought the series when they finally released it on DVD. But to me, the 1990 Flash series is like how the 60s Batman is for other people. We appreciate it for what it was for the era it was made in, even if it is kind of cheesy. Flash has been a mainstay in my superhero fandom all my life. The red sedan I drive is nicknamed Jay after the original Flash, Jay Garrick. It's an important part of my childhood memories, reading stories about heroes trying to do the right thing, trying to overcome impossible odds. Like most fans of fictional characters, I'm excited when they're presented in a medium accessed by the masses, and I hope that it leads to a more widespread appreciation of the character. That's what I hope for with the Flash movie. From this point on, I'm going to talk about the just-released Flash movie. I'm going to go into great spoilers about the movie, including as many plot twists and Easter eggs I can think of. So if you want to watch the movie spoiler-free, pause now and come back to me soon. First off, since this movie involves time travel and the main character meeting a younger version of himself, I'm going to refer to the main character as Prime Barry and his 18-year-old self as Alternate Barry. If you've watched the trailers or know the story is loosely based on the Flashpoint comic book, then you know the plot is Flash goes back in time to prevent the murder of his mother for which his father is falsely imprisoned when he was a little boy. In the movie, after saving her, he tries to go back to the present day, but is knocked out of the time stream and meets his 18-year-old self. Flash finds out his tampering has had a ripple effect both on the future and the past, creating a world without heroes that is defenseless when General Zod arrives to turn Earth 
into New Krypton, as he tried to do in the Man of Steel movie. My overall impression of The Flash is it was an okay movie. Not great. And in some ways a disappointment. Whenever I've done movie reviews, I always begin with what I didn't like, which is what I'll do here shortly. I will also mention whether or not the things I disliked took me out of the movie. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. First, I don't like that Shazam does not have Solomon's wisdom. I mentioned that a couple podcasts ago. But it doesn't take me out of the movie because I can accept that's what they're trying to do within that movie's continuity. I can accept it and move on and keep watching. Second example. In Green Lantern, Parallax, the main villain, is a giant cloud with a face. That takes me out of the movie. Not only because the look is so vastly different from the comic books, but mainly because clouds aren't scary. And I'm too busy thinking about the stupid-looking cloud than I am about trying to enjoy the movie. You'd think they would have learned that clouds aren't scary from Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, but somehow they keep making the same damn mistake. My disappointment of the Flash movie comes first and foremost from the CGI, which is so bad so often that I get taken out of the movie thinking about it instead of trying to enjoy the movie. To be honest, at times, I thought I was watching an episode of the TV series which has a far inferior budget. After complaining about it to Gina the night we saw the movie, and to my co-workers the next day, I came home and read an article where the director responded to the dissatisfaction with the CGI by saying it was on purpose. Get this. Quote, The idea, of course, is we are in the perspective of the Flash. Everything is distorted in terms of light and textures. We enter this water world, which is basically being in Barry's point of view. It was part of the design, so if it looks a little weird to you, that was intended. End quote. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just not buying that explanation. The CGI looks cheap. Second, the silly sight gags got to me. I mean, look. We all knew, as soon as we saw Flash cleaning his apartment at super speed to make it presentable for Iris, that at some point, all that clutter was going to fall out of a closet or some other concealed area. And of course, right away, yep, it happens. Ha ha ha, how funny. Then, they do the same frickin' gag two minutes later. Doing a predictable joke 
a second time doesn't make it funny. Then, in the scene where Prime Berry is trying to make sure Alternate Berry gets his powers at the proper time and place, in the chaos, Prime Berry breaks a tooth, which inexplicably lands in the mouth of Alternate Berry. Why this wholly unnecessary gross-out scene? So at the very end, when Barry sees the final change to the timeline he created, the tooth can fall out for one final stupid sight gag. Sadly, at times, this seemed more like a sequel to Joss Whedon's Justice League because they once again used the touching the lasso makes you tell the truth gag. Again, you see it coming when Wonder Woman saves Batman and Falcone from falling into the river and they have trouble getting the lasso off their wrists, so they start confessing things. It's cute at first, especially when Batman is confessing things while frantically struggling to get free. But then Flash has to jump in, touch the lasso, and start talking about his virginity. Again, a joke that tries to keep building only wears out its welcome. Zack Snyder's Justice League treated Flash so much better than the Whedon cut. I mean, in the Snyder cut, he saves the day and proves in his own mind he belongs with these great heroes. In the theatrical release, he's a nervous rookie whose highlight is saving a family of four after getting lost. In the opening minutes of the movie, he saves a nurse, a dog, and several babies from plummeting to their death. You'd think that's great, but all he does is complain the whole time. It really felt like a step back for the character. And then there's the big joke at the end. And I'm sure that probably worked for a lot of people, but it just fell flat for me. Prime Barry goes back in time, and Ben Affleck's Batman is replaced with Michael Keaton's Batman. Okay? They give enough of a decent sci-fi explanation for that, which I will come back to later, but after Prime Barry supposedly fixes the timeline... Bruce Wayne drives up to meet Barry, and out of the car steps George Clooney. Reminds me of that time I ran into an ex at a baseball game. Thanks for bringing back all the bad memories. They could have had Robert Pattinson as Batman and Kristen Stewart as Catwoman carrying a sparkling CGI baby, and it would have been funnier than George Clooney. Oh, well. Oh, and how the hell do you bring back Ansha Trow as Zod's right-hand man, who was fantastic in The Man of Steel, and not give her any lines in the movie? Okay, I'm second-guessing myself here. Maybe she did have a line or two. Regardless, she certainly deserved more, and mostly just stood around than doing anything in the frickin' movie. 
Okay, maybe that last part is not so much a disappointment as it is one of the missed opportunities by the creators of this movie. Now, most of these missed opportunities occur in the big finale, as we see alternate realities being destroyed by Flash's mistake. I'll get to all the things that were great about that, but they could have done so much more. When the CW aired their Crisis on Infinite Earths event across their DC shows a couple of years ago, the absolute highlight amongst a ton of surprise and not-so-surprising guest appearances was Ezra Miller's Flash meeting Grant Gustin's Flash, movie Flash and TV Flash together. How could you not return the favor and at the very least give Grant Gustin an appearance in the alternate realities? The biggest problem I had with the alternate realities was in the black and white reality of George Reeves' Superman. There was classic Jay Garrick Flash portrayed by Teddy Sears. Now, please, this is nothing at all against the actor. But when Teddy Sears portrayed Jay Garrick back in the second season of the Flash TV show, he was revealed to actually be the villain Zoom. John Wesley Shipp turned out to be the Jay Garrick of that reality. They should have used him instead. I mean, do they just not know that they used a villain for the hero? Or did they just not care? They kept showing all the alternate versions of Superman but just one alternate Batman, the Adam West, and, of course, the aforementioned Teddy series of Jay Garrick. No other nods to any other heroes. There are some aspects of Flashpoint, the comic book the movie is loosely based on, that I think should have been kept in. In the Flashpoint comic book, Superman was held in an American prison. Why did they have to change this to a Russian prison? I mean, I don't mind that they changed it to Supergirl, but why the change to the Russian prison? What's the difference? Barry thinks that the reverse Flash is the reason for the changes to the timeline. But it's revealed that it's all Barry's fault. And I think that would have made for a better twist. Biggest thing for me, though, is that the old man Batman in the comic book is not Bruce Wayne. It's Thomas Wayne, Bruce's father. Because in the alternate timeline, the robber shot and killed Bruce that night, not his parents. For all the frickin' times we've seen the Waynes shot to death in the movies and on TV over the decades, wouldn't that have made for a much better scene? There was an okay soundtrack, some, uh, some nice songs in there, but there's one song that they should have unequivocally added. The Ballad of Barry Allen by Jim's Big Ego. 
It's a great song. And not only is the song an obvious tribute to the character, it was written by Jim Infantino, nephew of Carmine Infantino, co-creator of Barry Allen. Even if you stuff it into the closing credits or the post credit scene anywhere, it should have been there. There are things that I liked about the movie. I liked seeing Ben Affleck as Batman one last time. I hope people will look back someday and realize how good he really was in that role. Jeremy Irons comes back once more as Alfred, calling in the Justice League to help Batman and relaying information as needed. And for that matter, I'm glad that they're referred to as the Justice League, something that was not done in either version of the Justice League movie. Whether or not it holds up with the scientific community isn't important, this is science fiction, but I like the way Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne explains the changes to the timeline. It was a lot of exposition, but using cooked and uncooked spaghetti as a simple visual to make the time-hopping confusion in the movie make perfect sense within the narrative. Prime Barry's ill-advised change to one point in time not only sent a ripple effect into the future, it sent one through the past as well, which explains why Ben Affleck's Batman is replaced by a much older Michael Keaton. It's also alluded to in the explanation that Prime Barry accidentally created the multiverse. Speaking of Michael Keaton, he was as much fun as Batman today as he was 30 years ago. He was great getting the berries into and out of the Russian prison. He was great in both of his death scenes. See, he dies fighting the Kryptonians, then the Flashes go back in time and try to save him, but he just dies out of the way. You get the idea. The same with Supergirl. Speaking of Supergirl, Sasha Cowley... I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, does a great job in the short time she has. Her character is pretty angry, and deservedly so considering her story arc, and she plays it well with just the right amount of pent-up rage that is viciously released when she finds out what happened to Superman in the alternate reality. You see, Superman never was. Because Zod found him in his rocket ship when he was still an infant and killed him getting the Codex. Yeah, in this alternate reality, Zod committed infanticide. And I'll bet people would still be pissed if his neck got snapped. It's total bullshit that people still don't get that about the Man of Steel, but I've ranted about that enough for now. Really, Everyone puts in a good or great performance. There's really no bad performance that I can think of. But I think my two least favorite performances were Jason Momoa, but that's not really his fault because his character is shit-faced drunk in his only appearance in the post credit scene. And the other would have to be Ezra Miller. But again, that's not entirely the fault of the actor. Yes, Miller is ultimately responsible for bringing the characters to life, 
but the way the characters are written as the uncomfortably awkward pouty prime berry and the clueless immature and almost always annoying alternate berry the scriptwriters didn't give the actor much to work with except for the interactions with his parents and the desperation in wanting to save her that's when Barry really shined, and we got Miller's best acting. I mentioned my disappointment in what they could have done, but the alternate universes they did use were fun at the climax of the movie. There was, of course, the Christopher Reeve Superman and Helen Slater Supergirl together in the sky above Metropolis, watching the breaks in reality. I mentioned the George Reeves Superman and Adam West Batman earlier, but the most fun of them all was Nicolas Cage as Superman. Now, most comic book fans are aware that there was a Nick Cage Superman movie that was in the works years ago with Tim Burton directing and Kevin Smith writing the script. In our brief peek into the reality, that Superman is fighting a giant spider, which... Kevin Smith claims was insisted upon by one of the unmade film's producers. So they took that little bit of trivia and wove it into the movie. Overall, the story itself was good. It was pretty well paced. I, I never felt like it was going on too long like Aquaman. I felt like it had some depth to it, which I, I really want in a superhero movie. I don't want it to be, you know, shallow. I felt for a hero who wanted to save his mother from being murdered and whose father was wrongly imprisoned for it. I just wish they had used all that extra time they had with delaying the film into making the CGI better than it was. It was so jarring, it took me out of the movie. I also had to roll my eyes at hackneyed jokes that, well... I've had to come to expect in many superhero movies, unfortunately. I might try to see it in the theater once more. Just because I really hope I'm just missing something that will help me enjoy it more. But I'll probably just save the money and, and wait for it to hit streaming. Since the DCEU debuted with Man of Steel... I've defended a lot of the movies that people have derided. I've also been clear about movies I thought were just not good. My least favorite of all the DCEU movies was, and still is, Wonder Woman 84. And I've made it clear that the next lowest on that list is Suicide Squad, the first one. Which had some good qualities that I'll still defend, but suffered from a poorly conceived villain that pushed the story in the wrong direction. And, though I originally lauded the theatrical release of Justice League, as time has gone on and I've seen what Snyder intended for the movie, my opinion of the Whedon cut has dropped it down to the bottom three. For all the love I have, and the long history I have for The Flash as a comic book fan, I'm sorry to say this movie is down there with those other disappointments. Should you go see it? I guess. I mean, I know that's not a ringing endorsement. 
and certainly not incentive for anybody to, you know, get up out of their seats and run to go see it. But if you watch comic book movies, if you've managed to get through these last few DC releases, like Wonder Woman 84, if you've managed to get through the redundant templates of the Marvel movies, then, yeah, go ahead and go see Flash. Give it a shot. Maybe you'll see something I don't. This is the Raging Rhino Podcast. You'll hear from me again.